Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Lectures and Seminars. Uh, thank you for joining us today in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. I just want to take the opportunity to remind everyone to please silence your cell phones and encourage uh, those watching online to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. For future reference, this program is being recorded and broadcast, and it will be available on the heritage.org website within 24 hours. At this time, it's my pleasure to introduce the moderator of, this, of today's program, Thomas Spohr. He is the director of the Center for National Defense here at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks, Andrew, and good afternoon, everybody, and, and thanks for joining us so much. And uh, before I get started, I want to recognize the presence of Ambassador uh, Bill Middendorf, former Secretary of the Navy uh, during the Ford administration, instrumental in getting the funding and the support for the Trident missile system, the Aegis system, and all kinds of other things. So let's just give him a little round of applause here. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Well, I'm, I'm really excited about this. As a former uh, Army officer, uh, there is not much I could tell you about submarines, but luckily we have assembled a great panel of folks to talk to us today. And so, um, you know, as part of the consideration for the 2020 fiscal year president's budget, uh, they're going to be looking at nuclear modernization. And, and like everything, they're going to look at it pretty hard. And I think you probably all saw where the Congressional Budget Office probably six months or so estimated the cost of the nuclear modernization at $1.2 trillion. Now, that's over a period 2017, I think, to 2046, but nevertheless, a significant amount of money. And the biggest component of that cost is the Columbia-class ballistic missile submarine uh, at $313 billion. Again, long period of time, but nevertheless a lot of money. Because of that large number, you know, big things tend to draw attention. It's inevitable that this submarine, even though it enjoys widespread support across the administration and DOD, is going to get a lot of attention. Today's panel will examine the case for the Columbia-class submarine and DOD's expressed requirement for 12 such subs. As I mentioned, we've assembled a great panel. It's kind of a wonderful mix of the uniformed military, the think tank world, academia, and think tanks. <laughs> uh, first to my left, Rear Admiral John Taman, Director of the Undersea Warfare Division, Office of the Chief of Naval Operations. Admiral Taman graduated from Rensselaer Polytechnic with a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering and earned a Master of Engineering Management from Old Dominion University. The Admiral has had numerous assignments in the Navy's submarine force, including commanding officer of the USS Georgia and commodore of Submarine Squadron 19. 
as well as significant assignments in submarine training, budgeting, as well as in operational energy. As flag officer, he served as the deputy director plans and policy at U.S. Strategic Command and Commander Submarine Group 9, Naval Base Kitsap in Washington. Next to him, Mr. Brian Clark, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He received his Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and Philosophy from the University of Idaho and his Master of Science in National Security Studies from the National War College. Prior to joining CSBA in 2013, Brian Clark was a special assistant to the Chief of Naval Operations and the director of his Commander's Action Group, where he led development of Navy strategy and implemented new initiatives in electromagnetic spectrum operations, undersea warfare, expeditionary operations, and personnel and readiness management. Mr. Clark served in the Navy headquarters from 2004 to 2011, leading studies in the assessment division, participating in the 2006 and 10 quadrennial defense reviews. Mr. Clark has served as an enlisted and an officer submariner, <coughs> serving afloat and ashore submarine operational and training assignments, including tours as a chief engineer and operations officer at the Navy's nuclear power training unit. Next to Mr. Clark is Dr. James Acton. He holds the Jessica T. Matthews Chair and is co-director of the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He received his Ph.D. in theoretical physics from Cambridge University. His research focuses on the escalation risks of advanced conventional weapons. The work on this subject includes the Carnegie-edited volume Entanglement, Chinese and Russian Perspectives on Non-Nuclear Weapons and Nuclear Risks, and a forthcoming article in the journal International Security. His publications span the field of nuclear policy. His analysis on proliferation risk, including from Iran and North Korea, has been widely disseminated by major journals, newspapers, and websites. And then our final panelist is the Heritage Foundation's Tom Callender. Tom is a senior fellow for defense programs in the Heritage Foundation's Center for National Defense. His focus areas are naval warfare and advanced defense technologies. He's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, where he earned a Bachelor's of Science in Physics and received a Master of Science degree in Applied Physics from Johns Hopkins. A retired submariner, Tom's active duty assignments included several attack submarines as well as shore assignments in the Office of Naval Intelligence, the Office of the Vice Chief of Naval Operations, and the staff of the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Plans and Strategy. Prior to joining Heritage, Tom served as the Director for Capabilities and the Capabilities and Concepts Directorate of the Office of the Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy for Policy, where he was responsible for assessing naval programs, technology development, and warfighting concepts. So really a great group. I'm excited about this. Each of our panelists is going to talk for about uh, 10 minutes or so, and then following that, uh, we're going to go to you for your thoughts and your questions. And so, Admiral, sir, if I could ask you to begin, please. Absolutely. Uh, Tom, thank you uh, and the Heritage Foundation very much for, uh, for inviting me to come here and talk about a topic which... Uh, You'll, you'll find I'm very passionate about uh, being director of undersea warfare. Obviously, Columbia is one of my programs, and, uh, and we're very excited about it. Um, again, you know, the topic is modernizing the sea-based leg of the triad. But more importantly, I think, you know, the caveat you have in the title is, you know, why 12 Columbia submarines? And, uh, and I know you, Tom, you talked about the cost of, uh, you know, the Columbia program at large over, over the, uh, you know, the life cycle of Columbia but I, but I will tell you, uh, it's a generational investment, and it's something that's absolutely needed for, uh, for national security. You know, from a historical perspective, you know, it's helpful to kind of look at where we've been as a nation. 
right? We started off, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s with the 41 for Freedom, where we developed the Polaris missile, transitioned to the Poseidon missile, and then onto the, the Trident C-4 in the 80s and in the early 2000s. You know, we built 18 Ohio-class uh, SSBNs to replace the 41 for Freedom, and we transitioned from the, uh, the C-4 missile to the D-5 missile. Again, another generation, you know, uh, post-Cold War, you know, around roughly 2006 or so, we, uh, we, we, we took that piece of it, and then we converted the first four uh, Ohio-class SSBNs into guided missile submarines, which are providing our nation tremendous uh, conventional deterrence at this time. And now, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, at another kind of crossroads where we, we require another generational investment in national security. We're going to recapitalize the, uh, the sea-based leg of the uh, strategic deterrent with uh, 12 Columbia-class uh, submarines. And I will say 12, but if you looked at, at the most recent nuclear posture review, the number is really at least 12 Columbia-class submarines with the uh, proviso that we can, uh, you know, look at the uh, strategic environment as we, we finish up on Columbia production, you know, when uh, the 12th uh, submarine is built. And, and again, I would point out that, like it or not, you know, we are entering a period of great power competition, and the, and the two great powers, obviously, are Russia and China. And I can say that, the, you know, the need for deterrence has never been greater, and that's based on, you know, the destructive of uh, modern-day weapons and the, uh, the competitive landscape that we're seeing with a resurgent Russia and China you know, attempting to, uh, you know, make their place in, uh, in the global domain. Um, the other point I would make uh, is that we, we have to own those top rungs of the escalation ladder, particularly when uh, certain adversaries have a stated strategy of escalate to de-escalate, primarily using nuclear weapons. You know, our competitors must understand that we cannot be out-escalated, hence, you know, our part of the triad, and that we must and have the, uh, the will and the credible capability to respond as necessary to their aggression, and that the cost of any action they would take will be greatly outweighed by any perceived gains that they, uh, they have intended. And then, uh, you know, the other part of Columbia class and the triad uh, writ large is the extended deterrence that we provide to our allies so that we can uh, give them that assurance and ensure that they don't need to proliferate additional nuclear weapons as would be necessary. So then next question becomes, so why Columbia? You know, as, as uh, confirmed by the Nuclear Posture Review, all three legs of the triad are important. And I would say, you know, uh, listening to Admiral Haney over the years while I was at STRATCOM, there's actually a fourth leg of the triad that doesn't really get talked about a lot, and that's the NC3 portion, right? Because without the enabling of NC3, it's really tough to uh, enable the, the triad to do its, its mission. And again, all three legs are important because we want to give the president options. We don't want him to be, ever feel like he has no maneuver space. And I will say Columbia gives us the sea-based leg. Uh, being the most survivable, what it gives the president is time to make a decision. You know, he's not, uh, he doesn't have to worry that he's going to have an attack that will uh, decimate his ability to respond. So that survivable leg always allows the, the president the option to wait out the fog of war, calculate a response, and then have that um, assured leg of the triad ready at his, uh, at his need. I know James has written many articles on entanglement, and my point would be that Columbia program helps buy down that risk since the president is not ever put in a, in a use or lose scenario in the fog of war. I would also say, you know, what Columbia gives us is the ability to leverage, you know, 50 years of experience in terms of a strategic deterrence using a at-sea uh, deterrent. 
And, uh, and currently, the, uh, the at-sea leg um, provides for 70% of the accountable warheads. Uh, and those are on Ohio class today, and we'll use those uh, same D-5 uh, life-extended missiles on Columbia as we move forward. So with, with that in mind, the next question is, so why do we need 12 Columbias? And, you know, U.S. Strategic Command has a stated requirement for always having 10 operational ballistic missile submarines. And we're able to do that with uh, 12. You know, right now we have uh, 14 Ohio class. And we're able to do that because, uh, you know, we've uh, built in life of the ship cores, or we'll be building in life of the ship cores for Columbia class. So we remove the extended uh, uh, maintenance period to refuel them. But also contributing for that 10 is the need to operate in two oceans and the way we get their survivable is by ensuring that those ballistic missile submarines have just very large areas of the ocean to operate in so they, re they remain undetected and they remain uh, survivable. And then also built into the analysis for 12 submarines is the maintenance life cycle for the uh, Columbia class and uh, the various uh, things we need to do to make sure that the, uh, the weapon system uh, maintains its reliability. And then I would offer, you know, what do you get by buying a Columbia-class submarine. So obviously the most obvious is uh, you get an ultra-quiet platform, which lends to its uh, um, being survivable. You get a, a submarine that's designed from the get-go to be a 42-year submarine. As you know, for Ohio-class, it was originally a 30-some-odd-year submarine that we have extended out to 42 years. But with the uh, life of the ship core, we should get uh, 42 years out of Columbia from the get-go which is important considering the cost of that submarine. So you want to design it for as long as possible. Um, we're also leveraging, as, as I said earlier, the 50 years of experience with ballistic missile submarines and, uh, and the success, therefore. And then I would also say what we're doing is we're leveraging everything we've learned in building Virginia class and baking that into Columbia. So the successes of Virginia will be rolled into Columbia as well. And then uh, you know, along those lines, the, uh, from the weapon system standpoint, We've had 171 successful launches with our, our Trident missile system, which is just, you know, lends to that credible part of, the, of a deterrent. And, uh, you know, we are conducting at least four tests per year, and that helps deter any potential adversary. And then I'll finish with probably the most important part of Columbia. What you get is you get the people. So what you get is, uh, you know, a group of uh, individuals steeped in submarine culture of excellence. And, uh, and as the CNO would say, you know, a group of individuals that are cultured in what we call high-velocity learning so that we seek excellence and, uh, and they're out there every day uh, maintaining the security of our nation. So with that, I'll pass it over Thank to Brian. Thank you so much, Admiral. Uh, Brian Clark, over to you, sir. Thanks, Tom. Uh, thank you for inviting me today. It's great to be here at Heritage again, uh, and it's great to be here with uh, some old shipmates uh, as well. And um, hopefully my time uh, working for John did not result in any uh, PTSD or we'll anything later. like that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, as, the think as one of the think tankers here, I wanted to address some of the questions that come up when we talk about uh, the sea-based strategic deterrent, you know, and that surrounds uh, its cost, its utility, how many do we need, and, and some of the potential vulnerabilities that it has, uh, which you know some would use to argue that maybe you don't want to have a sea-based deterrent. And I think that maybe the, the argument really should be turned on its head, and some of the vulnerabilities might be things that really drive you to have a uh, more capable uh, sea-based strategic deterrent. So I'll talk a little bit about that. 
so kind of the main points I wanted to make here are on the slides. I brought slides. <clears throat> so the um, you know, first thing to keep in mind is the undersea leg of the deterrent uh, is the most survivable. It'll continue to be the most survivable. Um, but arguably, each leg of the deterrent, I think James will probably talk about this a little bit, has a, has a different role. You know, so just like uh, John was saying, uh, the sea-based, the undersea deterrent uh, has that job of being the sort of last uh, resort capability for the uh, president. So the commander-in-chief always has that ability to launch a retaliatory attack if necessary, even after other options have been uh, exhausted or, or lost due to escalation uh, management problems. Uh, the ground-based leg of the deterrent is used to drive the adversary to have to think about attacking the United States homeland to be able to uh, eliminate it. So even though it's probably well uh, known and targeted, it still would have to be a, a homeland attack that would uh, take it out. And, and the air-based leg of the, of the triad is usually designed to provide you some ability to do messaging and to have some uh, delayed action so that you could begin to move a capability into place to start sending the, the message to the adversary that you mean business. So each leg has its own role. Um, you know, the sea-based leg's uh, role relies on its being the most survivable. Uh, the uh, the challenge, though, with the, the way it's designed, though, is because you've got a bunch of eggs in a basket, a bunch of missiles in a single submarine. Uh, if you take out that submarine, either through just suppression of its operations or by sinking it, uh, you've eliminated all those weapons all at once. And so that makes it very important that we not just have one su submarine out there being our sea-based deterrent, but have a number of submarines so that you've got some ability to uh, reconstitute immediately that capability uh, and you force the adversary to find multiple submarines to really be able to eliminate that leg of the triad. So the brittleness of the sea-based leg is something that has to be mitigated through uh, force structure and by having multiple submarines on alert patrol or at least on, on patrol so they could step in when the alert submarine is, is lost for some reason. The... Um, uh, the the challenge that, that we face right now, um, as John alluded to, is that they're relatively expensive. So these submarines are going to be in the you know six billion dollar range each, um, and there's a lot of pressure uh, to try to reduce those costs because of the cost of recapitalizing the nuclear complex uh, overall. Um, you see over right now a lot of discussion on the Hill with the new Democratic majority that they want to look at nuclear modernization as an area to try to achieve savings that could be applied to other purposes within the military or to other purposes in general. Uh, the problem with doing that, though, is um, you know each leg of the triad has its role. Um, the sea-based leg in particular relies on having enough force structure that you've got this redundancy so that its brittleness does not result in a, it being a a potentially um, uh, uh, unstable part of the uh, uh, escalation dynamic, which I think James will probably address, is if you have a, a asset that's you know uh, taken out and, and results in a very large change in your nuclear capacity, you could end up with a dynamic where that incentivizes the adversary to go after that. So uh, you want to have enough submarines so that you can spread that risk out and uh, reduce the benefits to an adversary of, of trying to go after your SSBNs. Um, so that means that you know, that would argue against using the submarine uh, or the SSBN as a uh, as a cost uh, savings uh, mechanism by cutting the numbers from 12 down to some lower number. Uh, but I think you're going to see a lot of discussion on the Hill this session about you know why do we need 12? What's the benefits of having a larger number versus a smaller number of SSBNs? 
Um, and so the, the focus going forward should be on how do we ensure that you've got that uh, redundancy in your deployed SSBN capacity, and how do we uh, ensure that that deployed SSN, SSBN capacity is not too vulnerable to an adversary's anti-submarine warfare efforts. And so I'd make a little cartoon here, but there's a lot of uh, changes happening in the world of anti-submarine warfare. Um, uh, countries like China and Russia have been investing in a long time in a variety of new anti-submarine warfare technologies. The Russians for decades have invested in non-acoustic ASW that they believe might you know, offer some eventual capability to find submarines over large areas or um, with uh, long uh, you know, dwell times. So uh, they can try to search very large portions of the ocean with non-acoustic ASW. Um, there's uh, increasing use of uh, active anti-submarine warfare, particularly low-frequency low sonar that's uh, achieving longer ranges, covering larger areas. So you could see a world in which if we don't have sufficient number of SSBNs out there, an adversary could be incentivized to go after them to try to take out that one submarine and take all those eggs out at once. Uh, the, the way that we would have to deal with that is either by investing in sufficient number of SSBNs so that you've got some backup submarines on uh, patrol, and then also some mechanisms to try to protect the submarine itself. And so we haven't had to think about pro-SSBN operations uh, in a long time, meaning using attack submarines or other naval forces to go protect or to guard our SSBNs to ensure that they're not vulnerable to an adversary holding them at risk, you know, which would sort of uh, undermine our escalation dominance. So some of the capabilities I put up on the cartoon are things that we might need to use in the future. So we might need to have SSNs going on patrol in support of SSBNs, which is what the Soviets did back in the Cold War. We might have to have active acoustic decoys that go out and try to simulate a, an SSBN to take the adversary you know, off the course of the real submarine. We might have to have jamming in the acoustic environment of the undersea to try to hide a submarine that's on, on patrol. And then we'll probably have to put out sensor arrays to try to protect our submarine patrol areas to ensure that our SSBNs are not being uh, surveilled you know, by adversary submarines that are coming to watch them. Uh, the challenge then is going to be, do we have a sufficient force structure to support you know, those kind of pro-SSBN operations? And if you look on the chart there, that shows the um, U.S. submarine fleet, both the attack submarine fleet on the top uh, and the ballistic missile submarine fleet on the bottom. The attack submarine fleet is going into a dip that will you know, uh, put it below its required force structure for several years, a couple of decades, until it regains the number that it's supposed to have, which is 66. Um, during that time, it's going to be very difficult for us to manage to deploy a lot of attack submarines in pro-SSBN operations because they'll have other things to do overseas. We'll have to think about using a lot more unmanned systems, uh, both stationary and, and relocatable unmanned systems or unmanned vehicles to try to do these pro-SSBN operations uh, to ensure that we can maintain the, the sea-based deterrent as that most survivable leg and, uh, and uh, mitigate the vulnerability that might come from its brittleness uh, as an element of the strategic triad. So that, those are the things I have to say. Over to you. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've been in Washington for 10 years, and I think this is probably the most intimidating panel I've taken part on. Uh, I'm surrounded by uh, three submariners. Uh, I have never set foot on a submarine. Um, I can, however, recite word for word Sean Connery's speech from the bridge in Hunt for Red October. Um, I won't try and compete in terms of detailed understanding of individual submarines. I think where I can contribute to this panel is in terms of how submarines fit into the larger issue of the U.S. nuclear posture as a whole. 
Um, and as our chair has already pointed out, CBO, Congressional Budget Office, has said that the cost of nuclear modernization, uh, actually, sorry, it's not just modernization, the cost of uh, everything nuclear over the next 30 years is going to be about $1.2 trillion. It's important to realize that that isn't spread uniformly over the next 30 years. There's what, and this shows you the influence of uh, the Navy on nuclear strategy, there's what's known as the bow wave in expenditure, uh, where today the cost for nuclear forces is about, is about $30 billion, and that's going to rise to $50 billion, uh, by the 2030s. Um, now, look, I'm, I'm not naive about this. I'm aware that, as uh, the White House Chief of Staff has said, uh, when it comes to budget deficits, no one cares. Uh, but let me assure you, when President Harris takes office in 2021, people are going to really start worrying about the budget deficit again. And I think there are going to be real trade-offs that are going to have to be made here. Um, and so what I really want to address is, if you want 12 submarines, and I think I probably do, by the way, how do you make space for that? Where are the trade-offs going to be? For me, the single most important attribute in nuclear forces is survivability. And people often ask the question about will SSBNs be survivable in 10, 20, 30, 40 years? I think that's fundamentally the wrong question to be asking. I think the right question to be asking is which leg of the triad is most likely to be survivable in however many years in the face of technological change. Because it's not just the SSBN force that faces survivability challenges. It's the other legs of the triad as well. And from that perspective, I think SSBNs probably are the leg of the triad that is least likely to be undermined by technological change. Uh, ICBMs are unquestionably already vulnerable to a large-scale nuclear strike. I think they're also increasingly vulnerable to long-range, advanced, non-nuclear weapons. I'm actually relatively optimistic when it comes to aircraft survivability. I think the combination of stealth with accompanying offensive operations makes me actually relatively optimistic, as I've said. But at the end of the day, attacking aircraft, I think, is for all, you know, all the reasons that Brian has indicated, is, is an easier problem than locating and attacking SSBNs. And more than that, and Brian alluded to this, but I, I want to bring this out, New technology can help protect SSBNs as well as hunt SSBNs. Um, you know, the use of acoustic decoys that Brian's already mentioned, I think, is a very good example of that. So, you know, for all of those reasons, I'm, you know, I think, I think it, the SSBN investment is one that's worthwhile making. Um, however, and there are kind of two howevers here. Um, again, I'm kind of copying Brian here, but, you know, the consequences of a single submarine becoming vulnerable are much bigger than the consequences of a single aircraft or a single ICBM becoming vulnerable. Depending on exactly how you define this thing, roughly 5 to 10% of the total arsenal of survivable strategic warheads uh, is deployed in each submarine. Uh, it depends a bit on you know, how you define survivable strategic warheads, how many warheads you think are at sea, how many... Uh, aircraft warheads are available. But, you know, one is thinking about 5 to 10% of the entire force is represented by a single submarine. And command and control for submarines has particular challenges associated with it. Um, partly because of the potentially very long distances from the homeland at which submarines are operating, and partly without wanting to get too technical here, high-frequency waves just don't penetrate very deeply into water, and that's a problem. 
What all this leads me to is two immediate conclusions about the SSBN force. The first one, and you know, this is where a lot of my focus of my research is at the moment, I think we need to be investing much more as a nation in command and control. I think we've been shortchanging that. I think there is a huge mistake simply by... I worry we will rebuild the same command and control architecture we already have, just do it a bit better. I think that's a mistake. Uh, that what I The kind of command and control that I would want us to build is going to be more expensive, and that's going to put more budgetary pressure. I would also just say in passing that I think, given what I've said about submarine survivability, and in particular the risk of losing a single submarine, uh, I think the low-yield D5 is a bad idea. Uh, as some of you may be aware, in fact, the first production unit of this warhead rolled off the um, uh, the other day. Uh, it's a um, a modified uh, W76 warhead with a lower yield option. Um, this is to address a real problem, which is low-yield Russian use of nuclear weapons early in a conflict. I think it's the wrong solution to that problem. And in particular, I think one of the problems here is because the, the use of a single warhead off an SSBN risks giving away the location of that SSBN. Now, you can think the probability of that SSBN successfully being hunted down is very low. And you're probably right that it would be very low. But if Russia's used a low-yield nuclear warhead first, we're already in a nuclear war. And I think in that scenario... Even a low probability of compromising a submarine would seem to a president at the time to be a risk that's not worth paying when there are other low-yield options already available in the arsenal. So I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the low-yield D5. Um, I've said that the, the most important consideration for me in posturing a nuclear force is survivability. That's probably relatively uncontroversial. More controversial, I think, maybe what I consider the second most important characteristic, which is the ability to signal. Um, since Hiroshima, no president has ordered the use of a nuclear weapon, thankfully. But presidents frequently have engaged in nuclear signaling of one form or another. Uh, and I, that's an option that I want to give the president. If we're ever really considering using nuclear weapons, I would rather signal that to an adversary before we use them and create some chance of de-escalating the crisis. Now, you can signal with SSBNs, right? The U.S. could very visibly send an SSBN out to sea. But if we're actually worried a nuclear war is going to happen, that's something we probably don't want to do, right? You probably want to deploy it as quietly as possible. And ICBMs are virtually useless from a signaling perspective. So, you know, from a signaling perspective, to compensate for the, the fact that you don't really want to use SSBNs for that, um, then that's where bombers, I think, have their real value. So I've said nice things about the SSBN force. I've said nice things about the bomber force. Uh, you probably guessed where I'm going with this. Um, given the budgetary pressures that I've outlined at the beginning of, of, of my remarks, given the bow wave and expenditure that's coming up, if the goal is really to keep a force of 12 SSBNs, and as I say, I'm certainly not against that in principle, it seems to me that the trade-off is most likely to be with the ICBM force. Um, and that from a kind of long-term budgetary perspective, deciding to think about and make those trade-offs now is almost certainly a lot more cost-effective than being forced to make them 10 or 20 years from now. And let me, let me conclude there.
Thank you very much. Uh, and now we'll uh, conclude with uh, Tom Callender. Thank you, Tom. Um, <clears throat> so I want to build upon some of the, the comments by my mother uh, panelists here. And, you know, first starting off of, you know, of the SSBN force in general, the importance, I would say, you know, since George Washington did that first uh, patrol in late 1960 and early 1961, um, not only has it been the SSB the most survival, I, I'd argue it's one of the most probably successful defense programs between the submarines and, and the combined missile systems that Admiral Taman talked about uh, in, in history. We've had the U.S. history with over, I think we're approaching 5,000 deterrent patrols, getting close to that uh, so far this time. And, and U.S. SBNs are still... Um, practically virtually undetectable and, you know, continuous at sea can hold those strategic targets at risk, greatly contributing to, um, to U.S. strategic deterrence um, with that. The, uh, the one thing, as Admiral Taman talked about, is we've been forced, uh, you know, over several years of budgetary decisions and other, uh, other impacts on defense budget to delay the modernization of the uh, U.S. SSBN force and so with that, right, we've extended the Ohio's from 30 years to 42 years, um, and they'll be the longest-serving nuclear submarines in U.S. history uh, when they reach retirement in that respect. And all the Navy, uh, again, the Trident uh, submarines and the Ohio's with the, not only the, the modernization piece but the maintenance piece, you know, we, the Navy maintains them at the highest, uh, I'd say, reliability level possible uh, with readiness, um, but as they get older and as we start approaching that 42 years, the likelihood of uh, potential unforeseen material issues, especially maybe in some of those non-nuclear support systems, obviously is going to increase uh, and prevents, you know, a, a greater uh, likelihood of maintaining 10 operational SSNs. So the importance of the Columbia getting out there and getting out there in time, you know, cannot be, uh, cannot be overstated. Um, with this. And with that, too, you know, as some people talk about, you know, the cutting, you know, do we need 12? Can we do less? It's important to realize that, you know, we've already delayed the program two years. So the first, Columbia, will get its first deterrent patrol in 2031 when we're already at 10 SSBNs, which is the STRATCOM requirement, 10 operational SSBNs. So if there's any further delay or someone will try to cut some initial uh, submarines from the beginning of that production line, we're not going to be able to maintain that, you know, 10 operational SSBNs and then impacts on our uh, strategic nuclear deterrent and that piece with it, too. So if you do talk about cuts, you're going to be forced in the out years uh, with it. So really not going to be seeing any savings in any of the near term here in the next, you know, 10 to 20 years. Um, the cost of the program, yes, is expensive program. The acquisition, you know, over $100 billion. But I think it's important to judge this cost um, against the importance of this mission, as, as my fellow panelists have already touched on, the importance that they are to the overall uh, national security, strategic deterrence, and ensuring you know, global peace and, and other adversaries don't take advantage. Um, as Admiral Taman talked somewhat about, right, some of the advanced technologies that are being incorporated in the Columbia design uh, to help sure it has the most advanced stealth technologies, Right, We've got electric drive motor, a lot of other technologies in there to ensure it's the most advanced uh, submarine getting out there now. Um, and also, as I said, the, the incredible success we've had of the Ohio-class submarine and the Trident missile program, looking at that success and carrying that forward, I think you need to balance those and what you're getting, you know, over the next, uh, you know, 42 years of each of these submarines. Um, but also touching on some what, you know, what uh, Brian and, and said about, you know, 
people say, okay, are Columbia is going to be able to remain, you know, undetectable and, and survivable going forward with some of these new technologies, right? Some new, you know, unmanned systems, non-acoustic systems, and all these things out there. And I will, I will say this, it's, it's not, these stealth technologies are an important part of our SSBN survivability and remaining undetectable, but it's just part of the piece. As Admiral Taman said, right, the ability of our SSBNs to, you know, essentially between the submarines and the range of the Trident missile affords pretty much, you know, most of the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans could be potential patrol areas. So having that large area that an adversary will have to search even though you've got some of these new technologies, right? If you don't, if you have to search millions of square miles, it makes it you know infinitely harder to find him. Instead of if I know he's in a certain area coming out of that, and also, right, the conops that we have, uh, the U.S. Navy has developed over the last fifty plus years of how to operate in the most stealthy manner for our submarines of speed and depth and all these things. So it's how you operate too that also contributes to that. So it's the combination of, I say, these three major things that will, uh, and the continuing to evaluate threats as they develop and adapt both with new equipment or new techniques, I think will will help ensure that I think SSBNs and the Columbia will be, uh, you know, remain the most survivable and, you know, undetectable of um, any submarine out there going forward um, with this. On the number piece, Right, people have talked about you know the last several years. Okay, can we get away with ten? Can we with eight or even six? Has been mentioned um, in that regard, you know. And I will say with this, right, even if you cut to ten, right, right now the policy is ten operational SSBNs uh, to ensure you have the sufficient number of SSBNs continually at sea. As as Brian uh, and Admiral talked about, right, it's important to have those submarines at sea. Um, so they're in a in a mode already non-detectable. You, you don't give the op, the adversary an opportunity to detect one or two coming out of port and try to you know track them that way. If they're always at sea, it makes it infinitely harder from that perspective. Um, so as you see, later in the life, the Columbia's won't get refueled, but there is modernization things that come up. So at ten, you're not going to always have ten. That's not going to be the case. And as you as you lower down to six or eight, right now you're taking even more risk. Um, going forward, there of how many can you have at sea, and again, allowing your adversaries to focus more efforts on detecting um, and finding the ones you do have in the, that regard. Um, and as Brian said too, right, the smaller the fleet, right, the greater percentage of your uh, survivable warheads is on each submarine. So as with twelve, it's like five to ten percent, as Jane is. James said, but as you go further and further, smaller and smaller, six, right, it's double that, right? So each, so again, it changes the calculus for the adversary. Am I more lucky trying to go over that or not? So it, it affects our deterrence of, uh, of others' adversaries in that regard. Um, another thing, too, is, again, the, the, the threat environment has drastically changed. It's not the Cold War. We're not just pretty much fo- focused all our efforts on, on the Soviet Union, now Russia, Russia and China becoming increasingly belligerent, doing actions trying to uh, weaken the alliance of U.S. and and other regional alliances out there. Um, If they perceive a weakness in our strategic deterrent and our umbrella for adversaries, right, they can use that to further weaken those alliances. And if our our partners who fall under our nuclear umbrella of extended deterrence, if they don't have faith 
in our that extended that umbrella is going to cover them, then they're going to be more likely to develop their own nuclear weapons, and you get increased proliferation and essentially, in a way, right, a a less safe world in that perspective. So it's important to uh, have that piece with that too. You know, and a smaller fleet too is right with again now these multiple targets. Right, it's not just Russia and China. Right, we're, we're North Korea, Iran, you know, potentially other nations trying to deter with our nuclear forces. Um, and I have less out there, right, big areas, depending where I may need, may need to be to address these targets, um, then I may have to travel faster than I would if I have submarines already out there. So I could change my operating profile, potentially, of these submarines out there, making them in a more vulnerable, you know, with speed and things that I could do. So I have less. I could have to be forced to operate them in a, in a less uh, stealthy mode, which, again, then increases the risk um, to those submarines. Uh, other people have said, well, I can go with less submarines too. I can just load more warheads on my Trident missiles and still have the same number of targets. But again, that provides the president and strategic planners less options of you know, adjusting and uploading to new threats or multiple threats you're trying to uh, deter at one time, right? We're not just focused on one nation and turns from that perspective too. So these all play into multiple things, I think, is are additional consequences you need to think about when you're adjusting the number of, of SSBNs. Um, because I'd say even, you know, even a perceived weakness, it may not be a true weakness that we assess, but if our, if our adversaries perceive there's a weakness in our strategic nu- nuclear forces, all right, and it reduces their credibility, right, deterrent has to be credible and, and effective and our willingness to use it, um, then again, it's less likely to deter them from taking actions uh, going forward in this in this way, um, so that's I can I wanted to touch on some of the key things that uh, they had said addressing some of those. Um, I will say the other important thing to kind of like as I give up my the, my mic here is um, the budget issues with with Colombian nuclear modernization is, is critical and uh, the pressure on the Navy's shipbuilding budget by the Columbia class is going to be significant. Um, in there. The, although Congress has provided the National Sea-Based Deterrence Fund, right, which has provided the Navy some very vital acquisition authorities that allowed them to do some acceleration of production and provide reduced costs through some efficiencies, you know, I think Navy leadership has, has stated this, and I, I, I agree. I think, you know, Congress, uh, administration, you know, Department of Defense need to find a way to provide some additional funding for the Navy outside the normal uh, shipbuilding budget. This is not the first time. You know, it's the Navy's gotten plus-ups before when when we modernized. We built the 41 for Freedom and the, uh, and the Ohio class. We have also have other um, national-level means of additional funding that's out there, uh, for example, strategic sea lift and, you know, ballistic missile offense. So the case is out there, and I think that conversation needs to continue um, or even if we build 12 Columbias, there's some other additional effects on the Navy that would be very significant. Thank you very much, Tom. Great uh, presentations, and we're going to go to the audience here in a moment and uh, get your questions. Uh, just to get things going, Admiral, I was hoping – I read in the media months ago now about difficulties with uh, welds in missile tubes, and I was wondering if you could just give us an update on how the program stands and that whether that's going to represent a, a delay for the program in general. Yes, yeah, so as you know uh, – Columbia production actually starts in 2021. To de-risk the program, we actually picked, you know, the, the key lines of effort that we thought were at the highest risk, and we started those very early. 
And one of those things we looked at was the common missile compartment, which is the, you know, the, the tubes we're going to use on Columbia. And we started that, that early. So we still have lots of margin. What we had was a, you know, uh, you know as we ramped up in terms of uh, uh, missile tube production, there were some, some welding issues as reported in the paper. Uh, we've figured out the root causes of that. We've applied the corrective action and, uh, and we're moving forward. We still have margin in, in terms of uh, when we deliver Columbia. We still expect Columbia to be delivered on time. Great, thank you so much. Okay, so we're gonna go to you all for questions. Uh, I would ask you to wait for one of our uh, uh, folks to deliver you a microphone so that our online audience can hear your question as well. And then if you don't mind, please identify yourself and give us a quick synopsis of your question, if you don't mind. And I think the gentleman right here, please, is, was first. Oh, thank you. Um, well, my name is Robert Zepsochny. I'm not with any organization. I'm just here as a visitor in D.C. Um, my question deals with the – there's a brief – I'll just – there's a brief point where the attack submarines, uh, you talk about how they'll be pretty below the 66 that's needed, and that'll make it difficult to deploy the nuclear submarines as we replace the Los Angeles class finally with all of the Virginia. Uh, I'm curious, in the case of uh, when we talk about all the eggs in one basket in terms of inability to deploy these incredible submarines, these Columbia class What's going to happen if – my understanding is that the, they're based out only in two places, in Georgia and Washington State. Wouldn't it be better to have maybe one or two other docking ports to make sure that it's more survivable? Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, who'd like to take a swing at that one? So I'll, I'll take that one on. Uh, so one, uh, I, I know Brian mentioned uh, that we, we haven't been thinking about ProSSB in operations in a while. I, I will say you're, you're, you're not right. <laughs> I won't call you wrong, but uh, – you know, that's that's what uh, I, I have a team that does SSBN security, and we think about pro SSBN operations all the time. Uh, before I came here to be the director of undersea warfare, I was the commander of Sermon Group Nine out in Bangor, and I routinely had discussions on how I would generate my force if I needed to generate my force. And part of that was teaming up with the rest of the joint force. So if I needed Coast Guard to do something for me, I would I would get the Coast Guard involved. If I needed to get the Air Force involved, if I needed to get our P3s or P8s involved. I would, I would get those guys, they're co-located right there at Whidbey Island. Um, as you know, we are developing uh, various classes of unmanned undersea vehicles. So we're working uh, with uh, UUV-RON-1 in Keyport, Washington, to, to talk about the CONOS for how we, we, we would use unmanned vehicles to provide that protection. And then you have the host of uh, fixed, deployable, and mobile ASW systems that uh, we don't talk about a lot but uh, are in – in our uh, inventory to, uh, to take advantage of. So we, we do talk about that. Um, I, I will say there's, there's great synergy with having all our SSBNs located in those two bases from a man, train, and equip standpoint. I understand the security vulnerability of one having, you know, just two bases. Um, but we, what we do have the ability to do is, uh, is to do con continuity of operations type stuff. So we will uh, periodically pull our SSBNs into Guam, or Pearl Harbor, or, you know, we leverage our, our very close relationship with the U.K. to pull our SSBNs into Fazlane. And uh, so we have plenty of options. Um, so if, if we were to escalate, there, there are options we have available to make sure that we can continue to generate our ballistic missile force. Right. 
Hi, uh, Ronald Rourke from the Congressional Research Service. First of all, I thought that was a very good set of opening remarks from all the speakers, so I think you got the event off to a great start. I wanted to return to the, the issue of technical risk that you brought up uh, in your own comments and uh, note that the overall schedule for building the boat doesn't have a lot of slack in it right now. So the, the first question of the two that I wanted to ask would be to have the Admiral and maybe Brian also and, and Tom, if they wanted to comment as well, to comment on the Navy's efforts to work to build more resiliency inside the existing schedule for uh, the program to absorb any more unforeseen uh, shocks that may occur between now and the 2031 uh, scheduled date for the first deployment. And the second question also for the Admiral, but Brian or Tom may also want to chip in on this. Uh, no offense, James, but they're programmatic questions. Um, uh, would be to talk a little bit about um, uh, the block-by strategy that the Navy is envisaging using as their contracting strategy for the program, and if you could do something to characterize the uh, savings that the Navy anticipates achieving through the use of block-by contracting uh, as a way of helping to hold down the cost of the program. Ron, thanks for the two questions. I, I will say, uh, if you read the uh, the CNO's latest, latest document, uh, the Design 2.0, he has particularly challenged us to uh, – quote-unquote, deliver Columbia as soon as possible. So we've been working with the program manager, Captain Rucker, and his team, as well as PEO subs, to work with the shipbuilders to see what we can do to, uh, to again, build more uh, what I would call margin into the schedule. Um, you know, right now, we're, we're focused at um, getting the industrial base, the vendor base, as healthy as possible, because that's where we, you get the stumbles as you try to ramp up. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we are... Uh, Nuclear industrial base has kind of been stagnant for a while. You know, building one Virginia, we've ramped up to two. Uh, there have been a couple uh, manufacturing issues associated with that. But uh, we're going to start introducing Virginia payload module, and then we're going to introduce Columbia. So, you know, we see the industrial base uh, ramping up pretty pretty quickly here. And so right now our focus is on making sure the industrial base can support that ramp up. And then we're also working with both uh, – HI Newport News and Electric Boat to see what we can do, what's in the realm of the possible to uh, to accelerate those schedules. Um, and, and and you've seen in the shipbuilding plan there are gap years associated with uh, Columbia. And if we can pull work into those gap years with the with the appropriate resources, we'll do that. And then similar to Virginia, using the block buys, we will use that that, that same contracting type um, strategy to make sure we give the uh, taxpayers the best uh, bang for the buck. Quite frankly. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I agree. I think that the Navy's done a really good job of trying to use advanced procurement to try to get some of the industrial base revved up to support the uh, supplying of the materials that are needed for the submarines down the road. Um, the block bio work really well to, to help that as well, as long as it's a real block bio, like a multi-year procurement, where you're actually contracting for multiple submarines at once. And you may pay for them on installments, you know, like you do for your house, but uh, you're you're making a contract to buy them all so that the, the the shipbuilder and the suppliers can go get contracted to go initiate the construction or building of materials, as opposed to the block buy like we used for the littoral combat ship, where we called it a block buy, but in fact we're only buying submarine or in that case surface ships on a year by year basis, which didn't allow for any economic order of quantity to be uh, initiated by the shipbuilder or the suppliers. So yeah, just a touch on. I, I think I think the Navy's I think has done is a good job as much as they can of you know. 
obviously the common missile compartment is one thing, right? Let's try to work and build those, get some work some of those bugs out and find those technical risks early. Um, the work they've been doing with the electric drive motor up in Philadelphia, um, with that perspective, I think of trying to, where they can, bind down the risk of these areas. On, on the block by, I, I'm fully supportive of that, like exactly, but in, in the mode that Brian said, because, um, you know, I think if you have a whiplash of uh, any doubt of, okay, contract the next sub and things like that, I think it's not just, you know, the electric boats and some of those, right, they can absorb some of that, but it's, you don't want to impact their, you know, their workforce as they're trying to ramp up and, and, and train and, and uh, you know, bring, hire new people. But I think more, most importantly, it's, it's some of those small vendors that provide very critical uh, services and parts, having them have the, uh, you know, the fiscal certainty that they know, okay, I've got at least, whether it's five or whatever, that are going to happen, you know, as they ramp up their own infrastructure and workforce, I think is very critical to ensure that we have savings and that everything goes as smoothly as possible. Thanks, guys. Uh, yes, sir, Admiral, or not Admiral, I'm sorry, Ambassador. Oh, here we go. Here's your microphone. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I'm so excited, excited about the Columbia, I think it's maybe the final shield of America, uh, and uh, in a very, very dangerous world we're moving into in the next 10 years, 12 years, when we may see the apogee of the China-Russia great power threat uh, probably by the end of 2030, and uh, at, what, at which point uh, there are those that say the Chinese Navy will be twice the size of ours. I'm not sure that it will be twice as capable as, as ours, uh, uh, but uh, we certainly have to look at that as a, as a, as a real threat uh, uh, to our very survival uh, if it, indeed anything goes wrong in, uh, in conf uh, potential conflict. Um, I have a little bit of history that I'd like to ask a question about and see what, how we would react this time. Um, Mr. Carter asked me to stay on as secretary, and I was going to a little bit, but he, Harold Brown and Mr. Carter informed me that they were going to cut my new shipbuilding program of 156 ships and a half to reprioritize uh, 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 to other more valuable programs at the moment, which, which there was a lot of uh, welfare programs and others that uh, Mr. Carter had in mind. Uh, Jimmy, uh, I, I actually resigned uh, uh, because I, I didn't see the point of, of weakening ourselves in the face of the approaching apogee of the Cold War with the Soviets, which we predicted would be in the late 80s. And it was true. We we came on strong with the Trident and Aegis and and a lot of other weapon systems, and uh, we outspent the Soviets, and they, they had they collapsed. Uh, they economically collapsed. Uh, basically, uh, it's not just not not entirely true, but there is some truth to the fact that the Soviet Union at that time, and perhaps even today, Russia today is 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 really just a gas station with nukes. But uh, it's, uh, they've got a few other things going. But uh, uh, 
but basically it's a lot of it depends on their their gas and oil so if if indeed we put a, the nation at great risk when we canceled the navy shipbuilding program or half of it uh, in 1977 and then when recently in eight years ago six to eight years ago we canceled the asset program uh, and uh, a lot of advanced programs uh, that were to protect us in space and uh, a lot of R&D uh, went by the board uh, to protect us against the approaching apogee of Soviet China uh, great powers capabilities threat uh, looking out five to ten years perhaps ten years uh, are we putting ourselves at risk again when recently, uh, two months ago, one of the key senators said when we take control in 2020, uh, we're going to uh, cut substantially uh, this military industrial complex uh, waste of money. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Obama is probably calling up protesting my recent statement. Um, so, <laughs> But uh, comes comes now uh, uh, the uh, cutting out these advanced programs uh, uh, again uh, is a is a risk. I see. Uh, the actual quote was uh, from the senator. Well, Russia is only spending seventy five billion dollars on defense. We're spending seven hundred fifty uh, or thereabouts. Uh, why are they a threat? Uh, well, there are a lot of reasons why they're a threat. They combine with China. It amounts to a great deal more than that. When you add in the cost-benefit ratio, if you look at our tooth-to-tail ratios, uh, approaching, I guess, 50%, Admiral, something like that, uh, compared to perhaps a much lower percentage for Russia and China, uh, they're getting more for the buck, so to speak. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I think the vice chief of, of, uh, of, of, of the uh, deputy of the uh, I've forgotten Admiral Wellen's role, and I said recently that uh, if you add up the cost-benefit ratios of the uh, China and Russia and tooth-to-tail and all the other factors, uh, they, their budgets are really probably $350 billion or something approaching uh, 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 substantially more than the, the acknowledged figures if you add in the cost-benefit ratio. Now, the senator is not looking at that. He's talking about redirecting our priorities away from defense uh, or advanced weapons systems in defense, and, and, and perhaps one can even read the word Columbia in that. Uh, and into other areas following the Carter and most recent administration uh, actions, uh, if that's a guide to the future. I, I, I just, I say this because I lived through, uh, I took a, it was a terrible beating for me uh, to lose that and uh, put our nation, saw our nation be put at risk. Fortunately, Mr. Reagan came in and reversed it very quickly and we, we went back on that program very quickly, and we moved very fast, and we were able to win the, the Cold War, as you know. Uh, is it, uh, I, I personally think that uh, we should not be talking about six 
Colombians, we should talk about the maximum. If, if it is the final shield in America, uh, I, we should be talking about uh, uh, as a national priority over everything else, that in R&D into new weapon systems, technology, in AI and space, uh, cyber, uh, robots, laser, uh, EMP, uh, all those things should be national emergencies right now, uh, and uh, especially, and if the, if the Columbia is the final shield of America, we should double the number, uh, have the number of 12, and, and because the only way to preserve to not uh, have a war is to preserve peace through strength. Uh, that's a question. And would, would, could I ask the panel if they would agree that we should prioritize that? Uh, yeah, it's a great, great question, sir. Thank you. And so I think I'm going to give the admiral a pass on this because it ventures into the political world unless you really want to take a swing at it. And, <laughs> and maybe we'll uh, – I mean the – what I'll offer yeah. is that the 30-year uh, shipbuilding plan – you know, the, the plan of record shows that uh, you know, we will continue serial production of a, a Columbia-sized vessel past number 12, and that gives, that gives leadership the option that if they, they want more Columbias, they will have that option. And if they don't, we can go the conventional route and do what we're, you know, ter- you know pointing in a, a large volume host platform. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, anything to add? I, I think the, the biggest concern I would have with reducing the defense budget and reducing some of these construction programs is the fact that it starts to undermine the seed corn for the future as we lose a lot of the R&D base and we lose the shipbuilding base. I mean, when you when we cut the shipbuilding budget to the degree we did in the 70s, a lot of shipyards went out of business and now you can't reconstitute those. So maintaining the ability to construct ships in the future kind of requires us to construct them at least in the near term. James, anything? I'd just say ultra briefly that you know, the S strategy is connecting means to ends, right? That's what strategy is. So starting with a clear-eyed perception of what national resources are available is the starting point of strategy. And if Columbia is a critical program and, you know, in favor of 12 boats, uh, one has to think about what the trade-offs are going to be. And deciding that you're going to identify those trade-offs earlier rather than later for me is, 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 is the essence of strategic thinking and long-term planning and budgeting. Yes, I mean, just to build on some of what Brian the Admiral said, uh, one from the shipbuilding perspective, right? I think, you know, Admiral Merz and his team did a great job of identifying there of interior shipbuilding, what is the kind of the minimum shipbuilding needed to sustain, you know, the current industrial shipbuilding Dutch base we have right now, which is drastically smaller than it was uh, during the Reagan administration, even in the 90s. And it's very fragile, um, as Ken Perry is here from the electric boat can say, right, is that, you know, you lose, you have to get rid of these workers. It's, it takes years to bring them back and train it is, is important to consider that. And on the R&D side, not just on submarine R&D, but I think other important emerging technologies, hypersonics, uh, railgun lasers, these are things that we're seeing, right, our adversaries, the China, the Russia's, others are investing heavily in. Um, and they may or may not be have have uh, have ones that are ready to deploy or out there uh, how, how mature they are. But whether we invest in these technologies to defend ourselves and our allies, our adversaries are, um, and we can't just hope that you know they mature on their own and we get to deploy them in several years. It's uh, identifying and putting aside money for R&D, I think, over the next 10 to 20 years is critical to mature these technologies that we believe um, show real capability and promise um, and, and continue to feed those by 
we too often we you know we stop we stop funding we don't have we lose patients um, and then several years later we say oh no these are important and we start you know having to start from scratch and we've wasted you know billions of dollars I think it's important to identify the critical ones and can keep give them stable funding to mature them over time hey, be, before we uh, I want to get one thing in and then see where we go with that and that is we've talked about 12 votes and I think we got from 12 to 10, and we said two are going to be in deep maintenance. Am I getting – Have I? I'm still okay. Okay. And then we have said uh, U.S. Strategic Command has said their requirement's 10. And <coughs> I've always been a skeptic, and so uh, would anyone want to take a crack at why U.S. Strategic Command needs 10? And I know there's – we could get into some classified stuff here, but I'd, I'd love to have somebody kind of say here is, here is the, the shorthand, the whiteboard kind of quick why 10. Why can't – we have eight, and we have everybody gets a six-hour energy drink or something like that. You know why? Why can't why can't we go a little bit lower? Anybody want to take a swing at that? So I'll, I'll do it, so John doesn't have to do it. Uh, so <laughs> the, uh, so uh, if you think of the um, uh, the submarine having a normal deployment of maybe seventy days, <coughs> and then it's in port for maybe thirty days afterwards, and that's just rough math. So it means it's got about a seventy percent availability. So if you do the math on a fleet of 10 ships uh, that's op- that are operationally available and you, you know, run the 70% against it, well, that means you got about seven submarines that can be you know, operating at any one time. And if you've got one that's alert in the Pacific and one that's alert in the Atlantic, then you've got some spares. You know, and like we talked about, you're going to need those spares because you can't have just one submarine in each uh, you know, ocean being the uh, sea-based strategic deterrent because otherwise it would incentivize the other guys to go after it because it's a way to eliminate in one fell swoop all of that, you know, uh, that coast's uh, strategic, nuclear strategic deterrent. So if you've got some spares out there and you've got two or three spares, you know, maybe on each coast, now you end up into that, that requires you to have um, seven operational submarines out of that fleet of 10 and the other three are in the course of their turnovers between crews. So it's it's a pretty aggressive schedule in terms of the ship's availability. Seventy percent of the time being at sea is a is a pretty aggressive operational availability. Um, but that's how you get to you know the the need to uh, maintain that redundancy so that you reduce the the vulnerability of your SSBN force. Okay, uh, back to the audience. Yes, sir, on the end there, please. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Dan Leone. I'm a reporter with Defense Daily. Admiral, uh, forgive the descent back into the dirt here, uh, but could you tell us what the root cause of those bad welds was and how much margin they've got left in that program? In other words, what went wrong and what, what's their absolute drop dead to fix it and deliver? Yes, I would just offer that, uh, you know, as, uh, as the workload increased, they uh, outsourced some of the work. Some of the uh, <clears throat> non-destructive testing wasn't done correctly, and uh, as a result, the, the workers uh, didn't get good welds. And uh, at the end of the day, um, when we adjudicate all the issues, uh, we, we still have uh, many months of uh, margin left in, uh, in Colombia. Okay, yes, sir, with the red tie. Uh, thank you, John Harper with uh, National Defense Magazine. Uh, my question is for uh, Admiral Taman. Um, as the Navy conducts a new uh, force structure assessment, do you anticipate that that requirement for 12 Columbia-class subs will remain the same, or do you think there's a possibility it might go uh, even higher? And then just looking at your portfolio more broadly, and as the Navy works toward a 355-ship fleet, 
Do you anticipate that the service might change its ship counting rules uh, to allow for unmanned systems to count towards the total ship count? That's a bad question, apparently. That's right. Not allowed. So I would offer that the uh, you know it would be inappropriate to comment on the current force structure assessment, but uh, you know I think that the security environment hasn't changed regarding SSBN since the nuclear posture review. So I think twelve is still a good number for now. And then in terms of uh, unmanned vehicles, uh, you know, and how that affects the force structure assessment, that's that's still to be determined. Right now, you know, we have at sea small and medium unmanned undersea vehicles. We we've yet to truly introduce large or extra large at scale. In, in the undersea domain, so I think uh, you know once once we uh, have appropriate runtime with those vehicles, then we'll start those discussions. Good. Okay. Other questions? I've got one for you, James. I was hoping you might outline with a little more detail your ideas on where we should go with uh, NC three. You kind of alluded to it. Sure. So my. Um, Nuclear command control and something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, um, I mean, there's lots of different acronyms, yeah. all, all of which kind of point to the same thing. But the the concern that I have in particular is almost every nuclear command and control asset that's been publicly acknowledged. I'm sure there's lots that haven't been, but everyone that's been acknowledged is dual use. That is, it's used for both nuclear and non-nuclear operations. Advanced extremely high-frequency satellites are used for communications for nuclear forces and non-nuclear communications. Uh, SIBA's early warning satellites uh, are used for uh, detecting an incoming nuclear attack and detecting, uh, not, for example, non-nuclear ballistic missiles uh, for the purpose of triggering ballistic missile defenses. What all of this means is that in a large-scale conventional conflict, um, adversaries... Uh, might have an incentive to start attacking nuclear command and control assets, perhaps to undermine their conventional functions, you know, for the purpose of winning or not losing the conventional war. But those attacks would have the effect, incidentally, of degrading the U.S. nuclear command and control architecture. And, you know, we've built our nuclear command and control architecture around... um, quite reasonably, surviving and fighting a nuclear war, right? We do things like we harden satellites to protect them against electromagnetic pulses in a nuclear war. Um, But that's really expensive, and so we've ended up with relatively few of these things. And that's kind of not the design you want if you're not so... uh, if you're worried about them being attacked before with conventional weapons before the nuclear war even starts. So, you know, for me, this, 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 this problem that our nuclear command and control architecture could become vulnerable in a conventional war... Um, really demands a quite root and branch rethink of nuclear command and control. Um, You know, in the case of SSBNs, I've mentioned the satellites and their vulnerability. There's a backup system, the low frequency and very low frequency transmitters. Um, I can find those on Google Earth. They're really big and you can't move them. And I'm pretty sure Russia and China know where they are. Um, And that really just leaves the airborne leg um, as like the ultimate backup. And You know, I think there is much more that we can and should be thinking about to enhance that. Uh, You know, one example, one one idea off the top of my head, uh, well, quite off the top of my head, but, you know, things like unmanned uh, um, 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 UAVs, uh, unmanned airborne vehicles, um, you know, one could imagine having very large numbers of those. 
uh, deployed over a very large area in a crisis uh, as a way of providing a kind of emergency backup communication systems in, 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 in case large parts of the force uh, got attacked. Um, in, in the case of space, uh, rather than having very large dedicated satellites, putting communication transponders on large numbers of other satellites. We actually did something like this in the Cold War called AFSATCOM. Um, my point is not here necessarily to advocate for any one particular solution. People with access to the classified are going to have to weigh up the pros and cons of everything. I can't, can't do that. Uh, but it's really to say two things. That firstly, I think we need to worry about conventional attack before a nuclear war starts. And secondly, we shouldn't just build our existing command and control architecture a bit better because it's basically what we've been doing and the easiest thing is just to replace it. I think that before we start on this much needed recapitalization project, uh, we should be prepared to consider a much wider range of alternatives that may look quite different to the kind of architectures we have at the moment. Thank you so much. Okay, any final questions from anyone in the audience? If not, I would ask you to join me in thanking our panel. I think, unless I'm mistaken, there's uh, sandwiches uh, this way. Normally, they're that way, and this time, they're this way. And I think, in this case, they're submarine sandwiches. So <laughs> have a great rest of your day. Thank you.